0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story. Written and narrated by New York Times best selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Welcome to The Russell Moore Show. I am Ashley Hales. I get to produce this lovely conversation. And often we talk about listener questions and comments that Dr. Moore receives in his email or online. And today we are going to talk about some questions. I'm really looking forward to it. So if you have a question for Dr. Moore, be sure to send us an email at questions at russellmoore.com. Are you ready to get started, Russell?
2: I am very ready. Yes.
1: All right. Well, you know, this really, a lot of these questions have come in through your email or through social media, questions about pastoral ministry, church membership, church hurt. And I think probably a lot were actually precipitated from your recent newsletter that you sent out in mid-January about how do we reconcile, on the one hand, what the church in America is supposed to do and be, with the reality of its own failures, and how do we move forward? So I'm excited to dig into a heavy topic, but one that Mm -hmm. we are really looking forward to consider carefully as we think about the state of the American church and discipleship.
2: All right, sounds good.
1: Yeah, before we get started, just some statistics to kind of help us get a lay of the land. Pew reports that by 2050, less than half of the U.S. population may identify as Christian. Barna has said that only one in three pastors are considered healthy in terms of their well being. And don't worry, pastors have self identified that. So that's not them uh, saying that they're yeah, unhealthy. The
2: church members reporting. <laughs> right, report, right, yeah. right.
1: Um, <laughs> another issue, right, we have is that church attendance has dropped off. Yet, 61% of Christians who attended church pre pandemic have continued to still worship in the same place. So even though people are changing, some people are watching online still, there's a sense in which church membership perhaps has bounced back a little bit post those early COVID years. And then lastly, Barna just released in early February that Gen Z is more open to learning about Jesus, though, of course, they report this decline in early adulthood And they primarily learn from their households. And one in three teens are now considered to be committed Christians in America. So some good news, some sobering news. And we're going to really kind of think about leadership and pastoral health and how we might, whether we're leaders or people in the pews, think about the state of the Christian church. So our very first question, before we get to any heavy hitters, someone asks, how do I know if seminary is right for me? How should someone evaluate a desire to attend seminary? And what do you recommend as far as making the most of one's time in seminary?
2: Well, as someone who was a chief academic officer of a seminary and in, in charge of recruiting students for many uh, years of my life, I found that I was often recruiting people not to go to seminary as much as I was recruiting people to mm. go to seminary. And the reason is this, because what, what you have to ask is, why do you want to go to seminary? Mm-hmm. So if you have somebody who says, I've been called to ministry, my church recognizes that uh, call to ministry and I want to be equipped to do it, okay great. Um, if somebody is saying, I want to uh, increase my Bible knowledge uh, more and there's a program that I can enter and that will help me uh, a little bit as a layperson, that can be helpful as well. What's not helpful is if someone thinks, if I go to seminary, I'm going to uh, be able to to find myself or to uh, make sense of my life. Mm-hmm. Seminary is not a place to go to resolve a crisis.
1: That's good.
2: Uh, it doesn't work well that way. Mm-hmm. And so if, if what you're looking for is a kind of monastic community or something along those lines, mm-hmm. seminary is not not the way to do that. And I've, I've seen people try it. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to, if you do go, I really recommend that you be physically uh, present um, a, as much as possible uh, we had online programs but the way the way they worked really were as entry ramps and off ramps so right. somebody might start online because they're uh, finishing up um, a, a ministry position somewhere or they they take a ministry position and they they finish out uh, online but there's there's something about uh, except for people who just absolutely can't do it about the actual accidental mm-hmm. sorts of relationships that you form, mm-hmm. I mean that that really uh, I, I mean it it sets up the the friendships and the and the relationships that you'll have for the rest of your life. Yeah. And a lot of the most important things happen um over coffee uh, as you're flipping through Hebrew memory cards or as you're walking yeah. to chapel, those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. You know, I think, too, there's a question behind that a little bit that maybe a lot of young adults are wrestling with some of these sorts of questions about choosing the next step um, and trying to wrestle with desire and God's will for their lives and what might be the next step. What would you say to that young adult, whether it's seminary or not, who's asking, how do I know, how do I reconcile this desire with my next step in life?
2: Well, with anything, with with any decision, I think sometimes the places that I've become the most bogged down is when I think I have to have perfect clarity and certainty about right. the next step before I take it, mm-hmm. and that that usually uh, just means that you're you're not going to step forward and make the decision. Usually, uh, when when I kind of look back, it would look back in my life a lot of the decisions seemed to be accidental. Mm. And I remember one time I was making a really big uh, life decision and I was spending a long time praying about it, thinking about it, seeking counsel from all sorts of people. And I was talking to this really wise uh, older uh, person in ministry and he said, you've already decided what to do. You, You just don't know it yet. (laughs) <laughs> you, you you have made that decision, and you're uh, there's something inside of you that's kind of walking the rest of you toward it. Yeah. And I think a lot of times that's what decisions actually are <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to serving uh, in in whatever one's spiritual giftedness is. I think the main thing is to. Find those little areas uh, to serve where somebody Mm. needs you and then allow the rest of the community or at least trusted people who are who are there to show you what it is that you're uh, that that you're gifted at. Mm. Because you you won't have a very good sense of that. I mean, the, 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 and I think we've talked about this uh, before mm-hmm. uh, here, a lot of times the things you're really good at are the things that you think, well, this is, this is nothing. I mean, all I'm doing is fill in the blank because it's easy for you.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> or, or, yeah. or, it, or it seems easy for you, but it's not for everybody else. So a lot of times you need people on the kind of on the outside, but that are watching you to be able to say, hey, look at this, this is what's... And then I would also say, one thing that was really helpful uh, for me one time, and this was after years and years and years in ministry, somebody on the outside went through and just sort of looked at my life from middle school, on. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, well, I started middle school. <laughs> middle school was terrible. Uh, and he said, yeah, but he said we're looking for patterns. Yeah. Uh, and, and those patterns can help you to to determine uh, where it is that you're gifted, where it is that you're enlivened, and and where you have contributions to make. Yeah. So I think I think that requires. But even then, uh, you're not going to you're not going to be able to say, okay, God. I have complete certainty that I'm supposed to do fill in the blank. Instead, it's usually, it seems this is where God's leading me to go. But God, if you don't want me doing this, block it.
1: Right. Uh, Have something
2: to stop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a hard, that's sometimes a hard prayer to offer because, you know, sometimes we don't want God to stop things (laughs) uh, if there are things that we really want to do, but that's, that's what's best.
1: Yes. Well, thank you for that wisdom. And I think it's what you were saying too about the importance of community is so vital, um, especially a multigenerational community, right? That knows you and has different yeah. levels of life experience and in different sectors to speak into your life, which is the church.
2: And that's what's so hard right now. Yeah. It's hard right now because many churches don't have that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you end up in in situations where... Uh, people grow up in a context where maybe their youth pastor knows them right. or maybe their small group leader uh, knows them, but there's not that broader part of the congregation that actually knows them. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's becoming more and more the case and that we really lose something when we lose that. Yeah, great.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. So
1: another listener writes in about choosing a church. Mm. Um, encouragingly you know he writes that he's making his way back into faith mm. and he wants to find a church home Great. which is beautiful but then he writes this you know at the risk of sounding like a jerk <laughs> the denominational churches i've been to feel stagnant while the larger non-denominational services i've attended seem more like overproduced motivational seminars yeah, all yeah. this to say i feel discouraged about not being a member of a church is he too picky is he He writes too sanctimonious, you know, and what factors Mm -hmm. should he weigh when looking for a church to join? There's no perfect church. (laughs) Yeah, you might
2: be too picky. Uh, And and the (laughs) the reason I say that is I I think about J.R.R. Tolkien was writing a letter to his son um, when his son was having this real crisis of faith. And what Tolkien said was, go and find a really unimpressive uh, parish. They were were Roman Catholic, but a really Mm -hmm. unimpressive Mm parish. Perish with people who do not impress you at all and who annoy you and irritate you, <laughs> yes. and see the fact that God God is working through mm. uh, word and sign, not necessarily through the impressiveness of those people. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something there's some wisdom there, and I I get exactly what it is that this this person is talking about. Um, I remember in my First church, we had a, a woman. I, I still remember her saying, "I decided to join this church because the bulletin, the little yeah, you know, yeah. program we yeah, hand, yeah. hand out at the beginning, doesn't look like a menu." <laughs> and she said, "the The other church that I visited, it was too slick." Yep. And I think what she meant by that it was it was it was saying to her, "This church is not for you." Right. Um, and so I get that. W- what I would say is. Um, don't expect a church that when you walk into it, you say, this is it. I found it. That may be the case and it's good. Uh, It's good when that is the case, but usually you're going to be saying, okay, here are the things that I don't like, but I can, I can Mm -hmm. serve. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll, I think you'll find that, um, once you narrow that down to that, that smaller group of people. And it also Mm -hmm. is true. You don't, a lot of times you don't really know a church until you are serving some way. That's a good point. uh, In that church. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the the difficulty with that is in most churches and rightly so, you can't serve until you are a member. But I think there are ways that you can kind of put your foot in the door Mm -hmm. to kind of see what it's like to um, work with people in that congregation and maybe uh, packing um, Christmas uh, boxes for children around the world or whatever ministry they have. I think Mm -hmm. there are ways you can find to do that Mm -hmm. to sort of see what's this church like when they're actually serving.
1: Yeah. That's a good point. You know, and both of those answers really help us remember that it's those small things, right? It's those small little steps either towards vocational calling or even just membership that are
2: important. Yeah.
1: Well, our next question really uh, gets a little bit deeper, a little bit thornier. It concerns allegations about those in authority. And Mm -hmm. as you know, we've been inundated with those from evangelical leaders falling, uh, Catholic sex abuse Mm -hmm. um, that continues, And obviously there's, it seems to be a structural and institutional problem in the Western Christian church that tends to hide abuse. So one listener, she writes a little bit more specifically about her own situation, but I wanted to excerpt a little bit about this, about the challenge of churches addressing misconduct, whether Mm -hmm. it's as egregious, right, as some of those more prominent falls from grace or not. So she writes this. She says, my new favorite Kierkegaard quote is this. There are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what is not true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. Mm -hmm. Churches, and then she continues, churches that are trying to investigate misconduct fail in both regards and they can't get back their credibility until they stop fooling themselves. To me, to this listener, the bridge between God glorifying and truth-telling is the philosophical nature of the consequences. Telling the truth has had consequences, but I believe them, that that is the consequences, to be the best possible consequences because they are the result of telling the truth, and God is truth. Mm -hmm. If the consequence of telling the truth is crucifixion, so be it. No better outcome exists, and it's been proven to be reversible anyway. So I want to ask from her sharing her own story of feeling unheard and not listened to in issues of power and authority, how in these sorts of issues of power and leadership, how do we begin to practice discernment around church hurt and abuse? And do you have any advice for church investigations? Like this listener is feeling unheard and yet is feeling vindicated that, you know, at the last day that God will redeem her story, but any advice for church investigations, and then how might those in leadership actually practice discernment, like she's talking about?
2: Well, I would have different uh, advice and counsel depending on uh, what what kind of power the person has. Mm-hmm. So, I would have a different I would have a different word of counsel for a church member than I would for a church elder or deacon or board member or somebody else mm-hmm. who has that kind of, of power of accountability. And uh, the, the, the main thing that I would say, the first thing is you can't rely on bureaucratic protections. Mm-hmm. to keep awful things from happening. Mm-hmm. because and, and I see this as somebody who's been working in this area for a long time. It's always the case that when, um, when something is revealed, people have a tendency to want to say, okay, let's find the simple reason why that happened there, mm-hmm. which usually ends up actually being, this is how that couldn't happen here. <laughs> so, uh, for instance, when a um, when a complementarian uh, leader, somebody who holds to uh, traditional uh, understandings of differences of of uh, calling for men and women, when when that happens in that kind of a church, then people often will say, "Well, see, it's the complementarianism." Mm-hmm. When uh, Bill Hybels and, and Willow Creek, mm-hmm. when that was revealed, I, I, I knew a lot of complementarians saying, well, that's that's what happens when you don't have uh, complementarianism and you have uh, men and women serving together in this way. Uh, or when, um, when the Catholic Church was going through uh, its issue, there were a lot of people in my kind of lower church evangelical tradition saying, see, this is what happens with hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all protect uh, themselves and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then when things started uh, being revealed in a big way in my own uh, denomination, mm-hmm. uh, there, were, there were people saying, see, that's what happens when you don't have bishops and you have autonomy. Mm-hmm. The, the truth of it is really all of those things are true in some way or the other, mm-hmm. because um, awful behavior can use any structure, mm-hmm. and so it's legitimate to step back and say, "Okay, here is how this structure or this particular theological tradition or whatever it is, how it contributed to this awful reality, and mm-hmm. that that means that we might well need to reconsider it yeah. um, and, and see see what's happening here, but." You can't. You can't get into the mindset. Okay, well, once we fix that, then we're the kind of, we can sort of drop our guard. And I think that's what a lot of people do. And sometimes not even with those big things like that, but just okay. Well, what are the policies we put into place mm-hmm. for uh, protecting children and children's ministry mm-hmm. or whistleblower protections or whatever? Now we have those. We we move on. Yeah, Uh, that just doesn't that just doesn't work. Instead, I think what what leaders need to do is to give people permission to point out where there are uh, holes and where there are gaps Mm -hmm. um, in the in the things that they're doing and and to give people the sense of you're not being disloyal if you bring those things forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that would really be one of the main things uh, that I would say. And the the other is kind of what this what this uh, listener is is pointing out. Value the truth over the perpetuation of whatever institution um, it, it is that you're dealing with. Institutions are important, and we need to. We need to um, build up those institutions that are, are good and need to flourish. Mm-hmm. But if you have to do that apart from truth and what's right, mm-hmm. then you're not actually building uh, an institution worthy of the name. Yeah. You're, you're doing something else that's much darker. Mm-hmm. And so to have that understanding of um, our institution is important. God doesn't need it. Mm. And so that means that we have to do what's right, even if, because the, what happens is people always will talk themselves uh, out of doing what's right by saying, you know, if we really start talking about this, people aren't going to, it's going to hurt the reputation of our church or our ministry or Jesus. Right. And so people get into a point where they actually feel like uh, they're protecting Jesus when in reality what they're doing is uh, furthering something satanic. Mm-hmm. Jesus told us that mm-hmm. happens. They will they will think uh when they persecute you that they are doing the will of God. Yeah. Jesus yeah. says. Yeah. So that's easy to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think the main thing is having having people who are in leadership who are sort of constantly asking themselves uh second guessing their own motives, yeah. uh, putting as much as you can the, uh, the safeguards in place, but not counting on those things to be foolproof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that requires a great deal of vulnerability
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And,
2: and revisability as you go.
1: Yes. I think that's a helpful word. You know, I'm struck too about some of the connections between your conversation with Yvonne Levin about institutions Uh and the ways in which often when we feel out of control, and perhaps some of this pandemic era has made us come to terms with that more rapidly and clearly, but when we feel out of control, we tend to want to Blame someone outside of the system, and I think that's an important connection to to what you're talking about as far as institutions.
2: Yeah, and what what you've all uh, points out, and I think is exactly right, is this this vicious cycle,
1: right, right,
2: uh, which is that the institution uh, it, its main purpose is to form trustworthy people, right. Uh, but when it fails to do that, then there aren't the trustworthy people to lead the institution, and so it becomes really difficult to get out of that spiral once you're in it. Mm-hmm. That that's that, that's that's part of what is so just gut wrenching and heartbreaking mm-hmm. about the situation the church finds itself in right now. Yeah. Now, and but now I say that, but I mean one of the things that we know. Is that's part of the way that Jesus actually uh, builds His church? Mm-hmm. in Revelation one through three is the resurrected Christ bringing things to light, yeah. uh, calling uh, the churches to repentance, and that might be that might be that kind of moment right now. Yeah, yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of nine lives and counting a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption written by dwayne dog the bounty hunter chapman nine lives and counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly nine lives and counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold visit thomasnelson.com audio To learn more,
1: well, our next question, um, similar sort of topic, but perhaps from the other side of the aisle, maybe. Um, It comes from a pastor's wife, and she is writing about some of these issues and seeing maybe how this sort of very public disgrace of evangelical leaders and other types of leaders have kind of maybe drawn themselves over her own story and her husband's story. So kind of how they become extrapolated and applied to her husband. So really the question has to do a lot with how we portray these sorts of falls from grace and media, how we consume it, and then how we're also under authority and what does that look like for all of us. So this is a bit dense and I'm gonna read for us a little bit where she's interacting with your, your newsletter from January 12th. She says, so your sentence, this is your sentence, Dr. Moore, when it comes to those who manipulate God's word to satisfy their own appetites for power, position, and pleasure, and at the expense of the vulnerable, easily silenced, and seemingly expendable people. She says this, I believe could be easily applied also to those who are manipulating God's word with the language of the therapeutic, to wrongfully accuse those in leadership. So she talks about, of course, there is a lot of folks, right, who have hurt other people who have been egregious in their sin towards others. She says, my concern, though, is that younger generations have a different relationship to leadership. And combined with this language of the therapeutic, they have less of a sense of submission to flawed human beings and most certainly to their pastors, who in some cases may also be their bosses. She says, of course, sexual abuse must be told. It's clearly sin, But there's a lot of kind of general conversations and criticisms of those in authority and particular pastors out there. So I'd love for us to kind of delve into what's going on in that question. And as we talk a little bit more, I'm sure I might have a few more quotes from her because she has some thoughtful things to say. But maybe the first thing to address is how has public scandal Kind of incriminated those who hold a similar role, and what are those sorts of leaders supposed to do with it or their loved ones?
2: Well, this is this is what happens. Um, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why um, that, that's one of the reasons why these uh, scandalous and abusive behaviors are so awful. Right? They they, they would be awful enough. Uh, If they were only dealing with that particular person and the people that that leader has hurt, that would be Mm -hmm. uh, infinitely awful uh, in and of itself. But then you add to it the fact that that's exactly uh, that's exactly what happens when there's a uh, when there's an abusive uh, police department, it starts to break down uh, trust in Police, uh, generally, because uh, people start to start to wonder, uh, can I? I mean, if you have a if you have a police department, uh, suppose, that's extorting people, uh, then somebody may well say, if I if I how do I who do I call when uh, when there's a crime, It, it breaks down the. The trust, even in the legitimate parts of that uh, parts of that authority. So how do you how do you deal with that? Um, The way you deal with that is not to say, uh, you know, people are so um, sensitive about police uh, brutality, and uh, most most police aren't. Aren't uh, extorters, and so Mm -hmm. uh, you know, don't don't use that sort of uh, language. Instead, instead, what happens is that the good uh, police officers are the ones who are the most um, concerned about this Mm -hmm. for for that very reason. Mm -hmm. And so, what happens when you have a when you have a loss of trust there? There can't be authority legitimate authority where there is not trust mm-hmm. because authority is not uh biblically speaking synonymous with power mm-hmm. it's not yield to me because i'm who I am <laughs> uh, instead it is a um it is a way of leadership that is is built upon uh, trust and accountability. So yes, you are going to you are going to have situations where, in every situation we ever are going to face, you're going to have people who overcorrect the last bad thing. So, uh, just as you're going to have um, some people who say, "Well, my my church was my church was so um, hyper uh, legalistic on sexual purity uh, issues, and we couldn't dance or we couldn't whatever," uh, and then overreact to that with uh, licentiousness. Or vice versa. Right. Uh, oh, I came out of a really sexually chaotic place, and now I'm in a uh, now I'm in this super legalistic place. That happens too when it comes to dealing with problems within the church. Yes, that certainly can happen. The way that you deal with that, though, is not by dismissing the the root problem. Mm-hmm. and saying mm-hmm. well that's that's not uh, that's not worthy of being uh, looked at and I'm especially um I'm especially leery when someone brings up uh, the issue of uh, therapeutic language because do I think that there is um there is a way that the triumph of the therapeutic to go to the old uh, book right. uh, can be can be <laughs> used in ways that that are destructive, yes. But there's also a way of dismissing uh, pain and suffering and harm with language of the therapeutic. Right. Um, In the same way that, is there a real problem with that kind of corporate uh, leadership culture in American church life? Yes, but I've also seen people who have dismissed as uh, pragmatism and uh, the pastor as CEO to talk about having basic organization to help people get from the parking lot into the into the church. I mean, right. that, that's that's not what that is.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I think um, when she's talking about the therapeutic, she's not really you know quoting Reef here, but yeah. Philip Reef, the Triumph of the Therapeutic, is what you were referring to. But mm-hmm. I think she's she's also concerned, and and I understand this about. This day and age, when have we kind of confused the language of sin on the one hand or holiness and the therapeutic? So have we shuffled sin into questions of health and unhealth and how that then might be a reason perhaps for young people, our listener is wondering to not submit to authority that is healthy and good
2: well I mean I, I think
1: that's a whole you could write a whole right, book about that right we'll, we'll just start here yeah I mean question. I think
2: I think questions of sin and holiness and questions of health and flourishing are not separate questions right uh they're they're bound together and so you don't choose one or the other And I think instead you ask yourself, what is good and holy in the eyes of God, and what contributes to the the health and flourishing of the people around me? those are not those are not separate sorts of of questions right now, do you have a sense where a, a sense in which there are uh, people who refuse? any sort of even legitimate uh, authority and have a cynical sort of suspicion of anybody who is um uh, who is in charge yes mm-hmm. that that does indeed happen the bible uh the bible speaks to that mm-hmm. in a moment like this uh what's the best way to get through that though it is it's by that long process of Actually faithful ministry, mm-hmm. so I mean I think I think it's there's a legitimate point to be made to say there are people who don't know how to differentiate between and i I, I says I knew a man godly Christian man, mm-hmm. and I said to him one time you don't have you don't have a category between." this is exactly the way that I would do it. And this is an abomination to the Lord, our God. And so there's no category for you of, eh, this is kind mm, of annoying. Mm. So are, are there people in any sort of context that have that kind of uh, reaction and and they'll put it into whatever language they uh, can put it. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's, uh, well, the, the pastors of, the pastor's unbiblical because he doesn't uh, preach the way I want him to. Mm-hmm. Or the pastor is tyrannical because he's actually leading. Sure, mm-hmm. that happens. <laughs> but part of the insidiousness of it all is that then uh, then we're able to see those examples and say, well, and that's, you know, that's what it always is. Right. And and then you end up with this really, really Uh, dark sort of situation in which all kinds of things thrive. That's why, I mean, with, um, you know, there's a kind of um, contrarian, uh, you know, cynicism always looks, uh, somebody, I can't even remember who I was talking to the other day, who said cynicism always seems um, insightful. And there's a kind of- It was
1: Yuval event. Uh, it. was Yuval,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah that he, was, Yuval, he yeah. was
1: talking about that, but it, that it's actually naive is what he meant. Yeah, but there, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, there, there, is a, uh, there is a kind of cynicism, a contrarian cynicism that says, well, the reason that we're having uh, this breakdown of legitimate authority is that people are reporting on the Mark Driscoll's and the Ravi Zacharias's and uh, what have you. No, the blame is not on uh, the people who are telling those stories. The blame is on the Mark Driscoll's and the Ravi Zacharias's and, uh, and other people. And part of the way that we overcome that uh, the, the kind of suspicion of legitimate authority is by making sure that authority is legitimate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be times when we come in and, and say, we've looked at this and this is not a problem with this particular leader. This is this is a problem of something else. There are going to be many times when, uh, there are plenty of times when that happens. Mm-hmm. But we also, but the, the main way you do that is by over the long term having the kind of uh, accountability that actually can rebuild trust. Mm. And I think that's, uh, I think that's what's necessary right now. I mean, the church is in, the church is in a very real state of trauma yeah, uh, right now. And there are a lot of people who would say, if you just, if you just ignore the trauma and start redoing the things that you used to do, the trauma would go away, and that is just not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not the case. And if we do it that way, we're going to end up repeating all that. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's not an, it's not in it's kind of like it's kind of like with somebody in his or her own personal uh, walk with Christ. What it means to follow Christ means this sometimes really confusing um, need for wisdom and insight to be able to say, am I, am I over scrupulous mm-hmm. uh, with my conscience and that's why I'm constantly beating myself up? Or am I experiencing conviction of the Holy Spirit? am I really legalistic in the way that I see God or am I just carrying out spiritual disciplines? I mean, you, 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 have, to, you have to be constantly watching that and asking yourself those questions and a church does too. Mm-hmm. And part of the, and often if you as a person are coming out of a time of great sin and unhealth, it's going to be even harder to sort of figure that out mm-hmm. in in either direction and i think the same is true for the body of christ at large.
1: Mm-hmm. Given this trauma response, you know, i'm just reminded like you wouldn't ignore trauma in the emergency room, right? We so right. why would we ignore it, you know, in in the body of christ as well? But just quickly as we conclude, any word of encouragement given this traumatic space in which we find ourselves for for those pastors or leaders. Yeah, I mean, I think. Particularly.
2: I think in every era, what you, you have to be looking for is what uh, the, the prologue of John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has mm-hmm. not overcome it, overwhelmed it. Mm-hmm. And I think that means uh, if, if what you do is to say, oh, don't look at the darkness, then what you're actually doing is John 3 retreating into the darkness. Mm-hmm. But if all you see is the darkness, then you don't see first John, the the true light is already shining and the darkness is already passing away. Mm-hmm. The, the way that that works for me is to look around and to see those flashes of God's grace, which are everywhere if we just pay attention to them. This past... Sunday, mm-hmm. I was uh, sitting in my church. I just finished uh, teaching, uh, I teach every week on, on Genesis. And then I was in the worship service and there were three baptisms happening, three testimonies. One from a man who was coming out of alcoholism and all sorts of uh, stuff. And somebody shared Christ with them and he came to faith. Mm-hmm. Another a guy who said, my life isn't working for me. And I said, I'm gonna make a bargain and I'm gonna go to church for one year and see whether or not my life is better. And during that year, he came to actually know Christ and was being baptized. And then there was a teenager who was uh, coming out of the foster care system and um, had really experienced some awful stuff and gave this Mm -hmm. beautiful, eloquent testimony Of, um, of following Christ and knowing Christ. And I was just overwhelmed. And I stepped back and I said,
1: yeah.
2: God is, the Holy Spirit is alive. Jesus is still at work. And I think sometimes it's very difficult for us to see that. Mm-hmm. But if we have the eyes to look for it, mm. we can still be amazed by grace.
1: Mm. Thank you for concluding us. So hopefully about the way that God calls all of us in big and small ways towards his light appreciate it thanks for this episode Russell
2: thank you Ashley
1: the Russell Moore show is a production of Christianity Today executive producers are Eric Petrick Russell Moore and Mike Cosford. hosted by Russell Moore produced by Ashley Hales Associate producers Abby Perry and Azrai Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.